X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, February the 12th. What a good day to subscribe to The Local. It's cold outside. It's cold and it's snowing. A good day to binge many episodes of The Local and to share with three friends what you've learned. Today, back in the day, February 12, 1999, Bill Clinton was acquitted by the Senate, ending his impeachment trial. In 1994, Paula Jones filed a lawsuit against then-President Bill Clinton for sexual harassment. Clinton tried to push the trial back to when he would be out of office, but the Supreme Court decided that Clinton was not constitutionally protected from civil lawsuits. The pretrial discovery period started in May of 1997. To support the prosecution's case, government employee Linda Tripp secretly recorded a phone conversation with Monica Lewinsky in which Lewinsky detailed her relationship with Clinton. Clinton denied having had sexual relations with Lewinsky under oath, and Lewinsky submitted an affidavit saying the same thing. Ken Starr, independent counsel with the assistance of Tripp, launched an investigation to a range of ethics issues with Clinton and concluded that Clinton had committed perjury. The House voted to commence impeachment proceedings on October 8, 1998. He was impeached December 19th of that year. Two-thirds majority, 67 votes would have been needed to convict. Sound familiar? On February 12, 1999, the two charges against Clinton, perjury and obstruction of justice, were defeated. Neither got the necessary 67 votes. 45 senators voted guilty for perjury. 50 voted guilty for obstruction of justice. And after the Bill Clinton impeachment, Congress let the independent counsel statute lapse, meaning that future presidents, including the very recently past president, were not subject to the kind of far-reaching, wide-ranging, multi-topic, and ever-evolving investigation that Ken Starr engaged in. Today, back in the day, February 12, 1927, Oregon adopted its state song, Oregon, My Oregon. John Andrew Buchanan from Astoria and Henry B. Murtaugh from Portland wrote the song in 1920. Seven years later, the two songwriters won a statewide competition sponsored by the Society of Oregon Composers. And on February 12, 1927, Senate Joint Resolution No. 2 passed making Oregon My Oregon the official state song. Whether the lyrics are a fair representation of Oregon history is up for debate. They certainly are enthusiastic, if potentially imperialistic. Land of the empire builders, land of the golden west, conquered and held by free men, fairest and the best, onward and upward ever, forward on and on, hailed to thee, land of heroes, my Oregon? No wonder people mispronounce the name of our state. We kind of beg them to in the state song. And continuing the month of paying special attention to some of history's more noteworthy black Oregonians today, we shout out to Margaret Carter, first black woman elected to the Oregon State Legislature. She served in the State House from 1985 to 1989 and the State Senate, 2001 to 2009. She was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. Raised there in a family of nine kids by her father, a Baptist minister. She had started at Grambling State, then began her family, then ended up moving to Oregon, graduated from Portland State University, then began working for PCC as a counselor. Republican leaders recruited Margaret Carter to run for a seat in the Oregon House in 1983. They had hoped to unseat the incumbent in the heavily Democratic district in Northeast Portland. Eventually, she won as a Democrat in 1984. In 1998, she was a candidate for the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction, lost to Stan Bunn. Term limits made her leave the House in 1999. She became president of the Urban League, where she served until 2002. She then retired from PCC and ultimately was elected to the state Senate in November 2000. In 2010, she was named Legislator of the Year by the Oregon Library Association. 
Listeners to the local know, a lot of digital downloads for the Oregon Library this past year. Today, we have an interview with Ramsey Farouki, founder of the Center for Study and Preservation of Palestine. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Community members have spoken up after a wave of vandalism in the Jade District. During the last week of January, as we mentioned a little bit yesterday, 13 East Portland businesses were vandalized, had their windows broken. The incidents all centered around the Jade District along Southeast 82nd. Most of the businesses targeted Asian-owned restaurants. I think it was nine of the 13, in fact. Apano, the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon, released a statement last week. They linked the acts to some recently racially motivated bias crimes in Portland, condemning both of those crimes. Duncan Huang, Apano's associate director, had this to say, and I'm quoting, a year into the pandemic, at a time when we all need to do our part to keep each other safe, it is unacceptable that Asian Americans continue to be targeted and experience these harms. It is up to all of us to root out these bigoted, racist sentiments that so divides and make our communities unsafe. Asian restaurants in the Jade District experienced a downturn in business the beginning of the pandemic. County officials said it was due to xenophobic and racist fears surrounding the coronavirus, citing, for instance, the former president's dubbing the virus the China virus. There has been an uptick in anti-Asian violence, not just in Portland. San Francisco and other cities have increased attacks on Asian people, especially elders. To be clear, there's no direct evidence the Jade District vandalism was motivated by racism, but the pattern in the businesses that were hit make us pretty uncomfortable. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. Yesterday, Oregon saw 621 new cases of the coronavirus and 12 new deaths. Four of those cases were confirmed to be the UK strain B1117. Meanwhile, COVID vaccine clinics are closing due to weather. OHSU announced that it would cancel weekend appointments and close its drive-through vaccination clinic at the airport. The centers at Hillsborough Stadium and Markham Hill will also be closed. Thousands of vaccination appointments will need to be rescheduled. Those waiting on their second dose will be rescheduled before they exceed the recommended second dose timeframe. The Oregon Convention Center will be juggling its vaccine clinic and its newly opened emergency shelter located in different parts of the building. As of this recording, the Convention Center has not closed its vaccination site. Among the bills before the legislature... Our state of Oregon, the nation's first state to conduct all elections by mail, could join the ranks of other states to accept ballots postmarked by Election Day. House Bills 2226 and 2687, heard by the House Rules Committee, nearly identical, except that 2226, brought by Representative Marty Wilde from Eugene, would allow third-party collection of ballots only on Election Day itself. And by third party, I don't mean like different than Democrats and Republicans. I mean other than the person voting. Oregon now requires mail-in ballots to be in the hands of county elections officers by 8 p.m. on Election Day. Postmarks don't count. That means there's a little bit of a moving target about, well, when do you actually have to mail that darn thing? Argument in favor of the bill, it would make it real clear. Argument against the bill, well, some people don't want everybody voting. And some other people want to know who wins right away, night of. If you have bills you want us to track, you're paying attention to things in Salem, you can email the local at xray.fm. Oregon lawmakers are on track to introduce 4,000 bills. This session, the Oregon legislature may consider its highest volume of bills in over a decade. We're currently about a month into the five-month session. The legislature has already seen a large amount of bills introduced on a variety of issues. House Speaker Tina Kotek said her top priorities continue to be the state's wildfire recovery and COVID-19 response efforts. 
She also said lawmakers might not meet in person to hold floor votes on bills until April due to the pandemic. In the meantime, legislators are holding virtual committee meetings and committee votes, and they meet for weekly floor sessions to introduce new bills. The Oregonian estimates that lawmakers had introduced more than 2,100 bills as of earlier this week. Many more are still being drafted. The last five-month legislative session happening in 2019, the House had 13 committees and subcommittees that year. This year, it has 23. And going a little bit deeper on this, the Portland police are not meeting federal requirements for use of force. According to the United States Department of Justice, Portland police no longer meet four key areas. DOJ lawyers cited inappropriate use and management of force during the 2020 Portland protests. They also noted that Portland police had inadequate training and oversight, and their annual Portland police report was not adequately shared with the public, as is required. DOJ report also said supervisors frequently failed to analyze officers' use of force. The Portland Police Bureau too often gave blanket approval of force and sometimes even cut and paste identical language into reports and reviews. During last year's protests, officers violated bureau policy by conflating active and passive resistance as grounds for less lethal munitions, including rubber bullets. Going further, the U.S. DOJ said the police in the city changed use of force policies without their required approval. For instance, for instance, police chose to recategorize acts of violence done by officers, making them seem less forceful on paper. This comes the same week as the National Police Foundation's report on Portland police. They were hired by the city to review police responses to demonstrations happening in 2019 and earlier. That report also came out this week. It made several recommendations. Notably, it said that rapid response officers lacked oversight, management, and support. Also said, officers lack crowd control training. And some good news. As cold weather approaches, additional shelter beds are available. It started snowing in Portland yesterday, and snowy conditions are expected to continue through Saturday. Those low temperatures are dangerous for houseless Portlanders. Starting Thursday, the city is opening emergency warming shelters that will remain open through the weekend. The facilities are also supported by Multnomah County Joint Office of Homeless Services and County Emergency Management. An additional 290 emergency shelter beds are set up across three temporary sites. This is in addition to the nearly 1,300 shelter beds that remain open year-round, plus 275 regular wintertime shelter beds. The sites are located at the Oregon Convention Center, the Metro Parking Lot in Northeast Portland, and the Arbor Lodge Severe Weather Shelter on North Lombard Street. The Arbor Lodge facility is already being converted into a year-round facility by the county. It was formerly a Rite Aid. These sites will also distribute survival kits to those in need, including tents and warm clothes. For more info on shelter sites, call 211 or go to 211info.org. There you can also find ways to donate supplies for survival kits. They need more blankets, tarps, sleeping bags, waterproof hats, gloves, thick socks, and other items. And that's today's today's Quick quick 6 Local Rundown. Next up, we'll hear from Ramzi Farouki, founder of the Center for Study and Preservation of Palestine. He spoke with Christine Alexander about diplomatic relationships with Palestine and indigenous solidarity. Here are Ramsey and Christine. Joining us now via Zoom is our next guest. He's the founder of the Center for the Study and Preservation of Palestine. We'll talk about relations between the U.S. and Palestine. Ramsey Farouki, good morning. Good morning. So good to see you. 
Thank you. It's good to see you as well. Thank you. Are you here in Portland? Yes, I am. All right. Well, um, I I must admit, um, I was fascinated reading about some of the stuff you you are doing and working on, and the the um, I want to say cross pollination, but I don't know if that's the right phrase. The way that you have so interestingly combined so many of your good works and. Before we dive into politics with um, Palestine and Israel, I'm curious about um, you. Your uh, Center for the Study and Preservation of Palestine has been delivering emergency supplies to indigenous communities in Warm Springs here in Oregon since May. Um, can you tell us about that and how many, how how much help have you been giving the the indigenous communities in Warm Springs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as a, as being a, a re, an organization, as a person, and also being an organization that represents uh, you know displaced, disenfranchised folk, one of our organizational uh, you know uh, found the foundations is uh, the service of the indigenous land and the people of the indigenous land that we're on. Uh, so once we were able to make a communication with the tribal elders and the tribal council there, uh, we uh, we were in solidarity with them due to their water crisis because you know their water infrastructure has failed over a year ago, um, and uh, so we've we go once a week every single Monday we take as much water as the truck can can handle. Um, we used to take uh, right now because the pass is kind of you know the weather. Uh, we just do the truck. Usually we would do a trailer, but we take a few hundred gallons of water out there every single Monday, as well as food and different supplies. Wow. And how how can people contribute and help with that, that ongoing water crisis on the Warm Springs uh, Reservation? You know, we would, we, I, uh, in terms of just if you would like to contribute, you know, financially or donating, you could always come to the CSPP or look at the CSPP.pdx Instagram in order to like uh, donate, but we suggest that you communicate with your uh, state officials because the water crisis there is not is we're talking about tens of millions of dollars to repair that. No amount of donations are going to fix it, um, and so uh, you know that that requires state intervention, um, and the state is obviously dragging its feet on that. So tell us, uh, my guest is Ramsey Faruqi and uh, his organization, Center for the Study and Preservation of Palestine. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself and and why you started the preserva- the, the the CSPP. Uh, yeah, I mean, I myself, I'm a Palestinian, uh, born of uh, Palestinian parents who were both displaced from Ramle, uh, which is in the west of Palestine. Um, you know, I've lived in the United States for about 16 years now, uh, full time, um, and. Um, one of the reasons that I founded the CSPP uh, here in Portland, Oregon, uh, is because Portland, Oregon is uh, really a, a city, just like many of the cities in the United States, that is founded on indigenous land that was unseated. Uh, and so the, uh, the relationship between Native American indigenous people and Palestinians, it's a parallel that is so strong and so clear, and it's underexplored. And one of the reasons that I founded the CSPP here in this part of the Northwest, because it's newly uh, colonized, newly uh, disenfranchised place in, in relation to the rest of the United States. So I think here, more than anywhere else, we need to be examining how the Palestinian indigenous experience mirror each other. Uh, and as well as Palestinians on Turtle Island in the diaspora, I believe that we should be serving the indigenous 
people while we're here and building those relationships and, uh, and understanding each other's histories and trajectories. I'm just going to interrupt you quickly to uh, talk about Turtle Island because um, I know that in some of the research I've done, we, we recently had on uh, scientist Christina Gish-Hill talking about the reintroduction of the three sisters and the seeds um, the seeds and, and native indigenous people's farming techniques. And, and I was exposed to this idea of Turtle Island that I had never heard before. Can you just explain what that is to our listeners? Well, I'm, I, uh, this, is, this is a term that I've been taught in terms of uh, how to refer to this continent uh, and this landmass. So I'm not exactly the best source on talking about that. Uh, but uh, I do know that I take my lead from the indigenous folk that are in my life uh, and that this is what they refer to this land as. And as a Palestinian, um, I know very well that language is power and language is important. And, I, uh, and you'll see in my writing, our outreach, that we call things what they are. We do not use the word conflict. We do not use the word uh, uh, controversial. We call things an occupation. We call things what they are. Uh, and when it comes to Palestine, it comes to every single issue on the globe facing indigenous people. Wow. Uh, again, my guest, Ramzi Farouki. So uh, let's get into some of the brass tacks of what's going on now in a new administration um, with President Biden last month announcing a change of the relationship between the U.S. and Palestine. Do you can you talk about that? And do you think this change is significant? And and how is it different from the last administration, and and do you think there's hope? Uh, there is no difference because the current administration has just clearly stated that they are continuing the Trump line by denouncing the ICC decision. They said that the ICC decision has serious concerns. The State Department representative or spokesperson, Ned Price, doesn't believe that the state of Palestine is a state or the people focuses on the word state as a defining uh, word for the lived experience of Palestinians, and essentially is saying that the Palestinians have no right, no legitimacy, no existential acknowledgement. It's continuing the Trump line 100%, in which the Trump line, though, went a little bit further because you know they issued that executive order that anyone who even tries to engage with the ICC, which is the highest, most independent, most reputable court on the planet, can be facing sanctions. Uh, so uh, actually, Biden, the Biden administration has, st has started off with an unbelievably clear statement that nothing is changing whatsoever. And these uh, this, uh, diplomatic relations are, I, I, which relations? I'm, I'm very hard pressed to understand which. So uh, continuing um, pro-Israeli policies and sort of ignoring the, the, the plight of the Palestinian people is what I'm hearing. What would you like to see happen? Well, you know, I'll backtrack one thing, and also the Biden administration is a clear supporter of the two-state solution. Right. And I'd like to clearly say that there is not a landmass left to establish a Palestinian state. What to, to talk about a two-state solution is absolutely madness because the West Bank, the last time that a very good survey was taken uh, uh, to, to account for the landmass that was actually Palestinian controlled, it was something at 83% of the West Bank was occupied. That's either military occupied uh, no uh, or uh, illegal settlements. So 17%, that was back in like 2013. Mm. I would say that it's upwards of 87% that is occupied. So we have 13% of the West Bank 
That is islands. If you look at a map, there is no contiguous land mass. Palestinian, the Palestinian, the Palestinian land is can be described as an archipelago, just a bunch of little islands that are disconnected. So to talk about a two-state solution is actually the most USA thing possible because that's a reservation system. Uh. They want us to accept a reservation system where we're not connected and we're floating. So now we're going to have a couple of little islands in the West Bank and then the Gaza Strip, which is completely blockaded and and not connected. So what um, what needs to happen if that's not a, a viable solution? How do we come to terms with the with the Israeli Palestinian problem? Um, I think it's very clear at this point that the only way forward is a, a situation in which all Palestinians have the right to move and live and settle where they wish with equal rights in the whole area. To me personally, you can call it whatever you want. Call it whatever the state you want, it doesn't matter. But we are Palestinians and we need to be able to live as Palestinians and Palestinians need to be able to return. Because if Palestinians are able to return and live where they want there, by nature, the politics and the policies will change if you acknowledge us as human beings who have a right to say things. Relegating us to little islands that are enclosed and then saying that your rights will be only there. We know what that's like. We've lived under that system for the last 50, 53 years or 63 years since the uh, advancing of uh, 53 years since the advancing of the border uh, during the 1967 confiscation and the continued occupation. So it's right of return and it's full rights in equal rights for Palestinians living there as Palestinians, not requiring us to assimilate, not requiring us to study and uh, engage in politics and engage in civil affairs uh, in a language that isn't our own, even though we are indigenous to the area with languages of our own. So it requires an acknowledgement of full freedom and full rights for us and us to be able to return. So bringing it full circle again, it's 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 talking about indigenous people's rights that that your people were the uh they are the displaced people now and uh i'm wondering so how does the u.s benefit from a two-state solution what would they call a two-state solution is it is it simply by maintaining the status quo or by satisfying big donors or what is the benefit of the u.s to maintain this idea of a two-state solution yeah well a two-state solution does maintain the status quo it also uh it is clear what a two-state solution means to everybody in the know and the people in the know like you said have money invested specifically the american israeli super PAC, the apac uh situation um it will satisfy people who have a hard line on what the area should look like and that continues the uh that continues the situation also a two-state solution concretizes and cement it's concretizes uh what uh back in the day ariel sharon used to say we will create facts on the ground via illegal settlements which they have uh concrete facts on the ground by establishing a two-state solution we are saying that forever we have to acknowledge those things in the language of the international state system which uh, means that we can't go back from that because obviously, uh, even though, even though since 1920 and every accord possible, it says that land cannot be acquired via war, for some reason we're able to look the other way when it comes to the way that Israel has expanded its borders. 
But, and all issues other than that, the rule of law and the highest law in the land is if you're a state. So to accept a state means that the unbelievable control, the completely separation of African and uh, South Asian uh, landmass will forever be mediated by Israel and the United States. Don't forget that Africa and the Middle East or the Arab world touch in Palestine. This is something that most people don't think about. And the state of Israel represents a buffer by a newly created state that separates two ancient contiguous areas. Now, there are many people who are indigenous to that, but the state of Israel functions as a new state founded in the international state system with clear policies that are benefiting uh, the United States. So what they have invested is very clear. Mm -hmm. So circling back to the supply runs, um, Mm -hmm. what projects uh, is the CSPP focusing on these days? Yeah, we're, you know, we're trying to expand this uh, water justice program to include, um, I, I, I put in the application to make uh, Warm Springs and Ramallah, Palestine, um, sister cities. Sister cities. Huh. Yeah, and so in order to make this, you know, this, you know, there's U.S. cities that are sistered with different places, but like I said, I mean, I acknowledge the indigenous of this land, and it's the closest people that I, and I've established a relationship with them. Now, the Warm Springs actually is a very interesting, uh, people in the Warm Springs have come from other places. It's not just, you know, there's there's people, there, there are uh, uh, tribes that have been here from from always, but there's also tribes that came from other parts of the land, which really is just like a Palestinian experience to me as well. So I truly understand that. Uh, So we want to advance water justice programs both here and in Palestine simultaneously. So one project is the Sister Cisterns project where I want to be able to design and implement like public spaces that are water cisterns, because in Palestine, in villages, we are, uh, we, uh, any sort of water cisterns often get, if they're built on the roofs, often get uh, demolished by settlers in nearby the, the, the nearby settlements. So everything has to be built into the ground. And so a water system that is built into the ground, very low tech, very low fi old techniques could be deployed here and there. And I wanna make that link continuously. We're also working on publishing a book or pu- republishing a book uh, about Jerusalem's history as a Palestinian history written by Palestinians for people who visit Jerusalem. Uh, that was originally published by Jadur uh, Quds, which means Roots, Jerusalem. Uh, and we're also in the process of documenting um, uh, colloquialisms of uh, the older generation, specifically grandmas, uh, and the sayings that they have uh, to try to document the kind of nuances uh, of the Palestinian language that uh, is kind of at threat of being lost. So we're trying to, we're, uh, you know, like, it would be called, we haven't, I haven't really just uh, thought of the name yet, but it would be something like, uh, you know, like my grandma used to say. It would be a book. <laughs> That's great. I love that idea <laughs> on a happy note. Well, again, yes. I, I just really uh, appreciate the fact that you're, you're showing us these connections and drawing these parallels. And I think that it gives us a broader understanding of the, the Palestinian plight um, more than we might have just by thinking of it as Palestinians versus Israelis. It's uh, when you look at it through perhaps an indigenous lens, it becomes more complex and yet clearer at the same time. So thank you for for that. Um, You've opened up your brick and mortar location on Northeast MLK. How are things going there? It's good. I wish that, you know, I'm an events person. That's kind of my life. 
I do. So we haven't been able to utilize this space, but it's uh, we have a reading room. We have a really great collection of books, and I'm uh, my goal is to have the most extensive Palestinian library, as well as a library that includes. Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot today about the indigenous Pal and CSPP relation. We haven't talked about the fact that uh, the CSPP also represents a third. It's a it's a trinity. It's also the movement for Black liberation, uh, because that unity and solidarity has existed from back in the day as you know with the black panther party uh and multiple african revolutionary parties the palestinian and uh black liberation movements have always been in discourse with each other so the cspp represents that trinity it's it's carrying the carrying the flame forward starting new fires the new being with the, the indigenous the connection of palestinian indigenous folk uh, and then carrying forward that uh historic connection with the black liberation so our library also wants to represent that uh, so we're by appointment. People can come by and hang out, read, check out a book. Um, you know, uh, I'm always there to answer questions. We will eventually have screenings. Uh, we might do by appointment screenings of documentaries and films. You know, small groups of people who are together in a pod can come watch it in a safe setting. So uh, just hit us up. You know, we just uh, we're on Instagram, cspp.pdx. That's really the greatest way to con connect with us. We have a website, cspp.site, S-I-T-E. It was the only, uh, it was the cheapest only uh, <laughs> website URL I could get. .com was gone. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, come by. We're also a depot for donations for these kind of things because we're always working with the community to, to reallocate and redistribute. Well, Ramsey Faruqi, founder of the Center for Study and Preservation of Palestine, thank you for the time this morning. It's been, it's been a fascinating um, discussion. All right, thank you. It's an honor. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you. I really enjoyed speaking with you. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks to Ramsey for joining the local. Big special thanks to the production team. Wizard of editing, Will Romy. Supporting magical editors and writers, Jonathan Covington-Brem, Brian Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Miranda Selinger, Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiassi. All hail co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks to Original Journalism and Research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, Oregon Historical Society, Portland Mercury, Portland Tribune, Salem Reporter, Capital Insider, Portland Business Journal, KGW, Willamette Week, COIN, Pamplin, OPB, KTU, The Oregonian, Bike Portland, and News Partners, Street Roots, and Eater Portland. Thanks for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.